You guys know that Tom Brady has won seven Super Bowls? Did you know that? How do you feel about that? Does that like make you happy or sad? And yeah, a couple Brady Brady fans. We got a Packer fan right here. She's not happy. He wants them to go home, which is like they they we got a couple Brady fans. So so Brady Brady's won seven Super Bowls, right? He won six with New England, and we thought that it was like the, the Tom Brady, Bill Belichick combination that made the magic. You find out Tom Brady can go anywhere and just win. Okay. He went to Tampa Bay. He was in the Tampa Buccaneers who were pretty bad for a long time. They got all these good players all at once because Brady showed up. Gronk showed up. If you don't know what I'm talking about, it'll make sense in a second. You Girls, you know Tom Brady's like, he's a winner, right? That's all I want you to basically figure out. He wins all the time. So the first game of the season, actually, he was with the Buccaneers. Did you know that he lost? And it was really, a really bad game. They lost. They played, they played the Saints. They lost 34 to 23. And Brady had two interceptions and a fumble. Okay, he had three turnovers. It's like the worst game he had played in like a few years. It was terrible. And if you were a, if you're a Brady fan, I was to ask you on week one, hey, do you think Brady's a winner? You'd say, well, mm. I mean, he's won six Super Bowls, but kind of looks like a loser right now. He's in the, he's, he's in the Bucks uniform. He looks kind of weird. He's in Tampa Bay. It's not a great city. Um, you know, whatever. Not to hate on Tampa Bay. I don't know if we've got any Tampa Bay people. What do you think? Bad city? No. He's <laughs> from Tampa Bay. Oh man, sorry. To our, uh, to our Tampa Bay viewers at home watching, I'm sorry I insulted your whole city. Uh, but yeah, it just wasn't a good look for him. But then if you know what happened, and I already kind of said it, Tom Brady was like, yeah, I'm Tom Brady though. So he started winning a bunch of games, went to the Super Bowl, and won the Super Bowl. You know why? Because Tom Brady's a winner, okay? That's, that's all it is, okay? He's a winner. You can like it, you can hate it, but it's just the truth. He's a winner, okay? In that first game, you probably weren't feeling like he was a winner because he kind of lost that game. And if you were sitting on the bench of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, you'd probably be thinking, we made a big mistake in in signing this guy because it's not working out. And that feeling that things are not working out, I thought they were going to work out great. I thought I was going to be on a winning team for once. And then the feeling of, oh, no, we're terrible, it finds out. That feeling right there is probably how the disciples felt in John chapter 16. That's probably exactly how they felt because they were with the winner. They were with Jesus. They had seen Jesus do a lot of things, but Jesus says, hey guys, guess what? It's going to look like I'm going to lose right now. This whole situation that's going to go on with his death, which is going to take place in the next 24 hours from the time that this was, this was taking place, it looked like Jesus was going to lose. Even more than that, it looked like the disciples were going to lose. Loss after loss after loss. But what Jesus says is, you're going to be sorrowful. Things are going to be really bad. But here's the thing. Your sorrow will soon be turned to joy. And that's a very famous passage, but I want us to read the whole thing. So grab a Bible. Look at John chapter 16. Look at John 16, verse 16. Jesus is talking to them last week. We looked at the beginning of this chapter. We said that Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit, God's own spirit, was going to come and convict them. He's going to convict the whole world in one sense. He's going to judge people at the end. But even the people who are going to be saved, the Holy Spirit is going to come and convict them concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. And some people were going to be saved. But definitely the disciples, the group that was saved and was living for Jesus, Jesus promised that after I leave, he's going to come and he's going to guide you in the truth. You're going to know the right things even when I'm gone. Those are all the big promises that were made that we looked at last week. Now, Jesus shift gears a little bit. Here's what he says. Look at verse 16. It says, a little while and you will see me no longer. So 
We're going to go really slowly through this verse. He says, a little while you will see me no longer. So they're seeing Jesus now. Jesus says, in just a little bit, you won't see me anymore. Okay. Then he says, and again, a little while, and you will see me. Okay. What is he talking about? That they're going to see him for a little bit, and then they're not going to see him. Then they're going to see him again. Okay. What do you think they're talking about here? What do you think Jesus is talking about? And for us, we might say, well, it can mean a lot of things. Well, the disciples have that question because they don't know the end of the story. You probably know what's going to happen. You know that Jesus is going to be betrayed. You know Jesus is going to be crucified. And you know Jesus is going to rise again three days later. You know that part, okay? If you're a disciple, you might have heard that, but that did not seem to sink in with the disciples. So they asked the question. So it says, verse 17, some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will see me no longer a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the father, what is Jesus talking about? So verse 18. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. That's what they were saying with each other. So that little conversation doesn't seem to be a loud vocalized question. They did not ask Jesus this question, but Jesus knew verse 17 that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you were asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Okay. So Jesus is just reading their body language, their conversation. And maybe he's tapping into that, that omniscience of his, that he, he knows what they're talking about and what they're feeling. We don't know. Actually, a lot of people look at this passage and they say, this is definitely Jesus proving that he's God. And other people are just saying, well, Jesus probably heard them having this conversation. Just nobody was bold enough to ask Jesus that question. So look at verse 20. Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. So Jesus is promising them something to these disciples. There's going to be a time where you will be weeping. That means crying lamenting, being so sad, depressed about something. That might be a word we use today. You'll be so depressed. You're going to be weeping and crying about something. And in that same time, the world is going to be rejoicing. What's going to cause all that? Keep reading. It says, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Now, Verse 21, Jesus gives an illustration. Sometimes I just gave an illustration about Tom Brady comparing, you know, in a weird way, Tom Brady uh, to Jesus being one of them. So don't, don't take that one too far. But I use an illustration. Jesus uses an illustration here. Okay. And here's what he says. It's a lot like a woman giving birth to a kid, to a child. It says when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. Now, when a mom is giving birth, is she sad because she's having a baby? Right? No, no, no. That's not what he's saying. She's sad because she's having a baby. Oh, you know, that's gross. And, you know, you guys, maybe in health class, you see that or whatever. Maybe they don't show that anymore. But back in the day, they showed that. That was really gross. Um, so some of you eighth graders, maybe you know. Um, well, sorry. Uh, but it's gross and it's hard. And if you're having a baby, that really hurts, right? You could ask some of our leaders who've had babies. They probably tell you it's not a good experience. But it says their sorrow will turn to joy. Look what it says now. Verse 21, after it says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So Jesus, what are you trying to say? Verse 22, so also you will have sorrow now, but you will see me again and your hearts will rejoice and no one 
we'll take that joy from you. Okay. I think here's what Jesus is talking about. He says, I'm about to leave. How is he about to leave the disciples? What's the process? Okay. You already know. It's Thursday night. Not right now, but this text, right? It's Thursday night. Jesus is about to be delivered into the hands of the Roman officials. He's about to be really blasphemed by the Jews. They're about to lob fake charges against him. Pilate is going to sentence him to death unwillingly, but he still will. All this is going to happen. Jesus is going to be betrayed and he's going to be crucified. How would that make the disciples feel? How would you feel if you had been following him for three years and now the person that you put all your hope in betrayed, delivered to death, beaten up, falsely accused, crucified, and then dies. Okay. How would you feel about that? You say exactly what he's saying. Great sorrow. I mean, really sad. But then he says, you're going to see me again. When do the disciples see Jesus again? How long does it take? 2000 years? Right? No, no, no. Only three days. So I think Jesus is very clearly saying this. When I'm crucified, you're going to be sad. You're going to be so sad, but guess what? You're going to see me again. And when you see me again, you are going to have such great joy. And guess what? Nobody will ever be able to take that joy away from me because you know that I'm the resurrected king. I think that's what Jesus is saying. Verse 23. Now he says, once that happens in that day, you will ask nothing of me. Now, you might say, well, well, what are we talking about? The, the disciples end up asking questions. Well, just remember, what's the context of this? They're asking, what do you mean you're going to go to the Father? What, what, what do you mean you're going to not see us? Jesus is trying to say, you're going to get it at that point. When I'm resurrected, you're going to understand this salvation plan that's being worked out. Because in that day, you lost nothing to me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Jesus is saying, you've been coming to me with all your Bible questions. You've been coming to me with all your questions about God. But here's what's going to happen. I'm going to leave. You're not going to ask me questions anymore. Guess who you're going to have direct access to once I'm gone? You're going to have direct access to God. You're going to be able to pray in a new way that you've never been able to pray before because I will be the intercessor. I'll be the one who stands between you and God. And then you can come directly to God. That's what he's saying. Verse 25, Jesus says, I've used a lot of figures of speech, said all these things to you in figures of speech, but the hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. When does that happen? Right? When does that, well, it's happening a little bit right here because Jesus is explaining some things for the first time to the disciples, but it's really going to happen when he opens the Bible to them, Luke 24, verse 27, and explains all the things from the Old Testament about him. So I think what he's saying here is, once I'm resurrected, I'm going to speak super plainly to you. You're going to get it. Verse 26, in that day, that phrase has been used a few times, in that day, which I don't think is necessarily just talking about Sunday of the resurrection. I think he's talking about in that time period, right? When I'm resurrected, you will talk to God. You will ask in my name. And I don't say that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I've come from God. Okay? Jesus is saying, once I'm resurrected, you're going to have a relationship with God through prayer. And it's not this relationship where I have to ask God for you. Because at this point, the disciples didn't know what to pray. They didn't know what to ask God for. Jesus had to pray for them. But he says, now, after I'm resurrected, and then I'm with God and ascended, you're going to have a relationship where you are mature enough and you 
have the access to God where you can just go to God yourself because God loves you. Why does God love you? Well, because you love Jesus and you believe in Jesus. Now, that might be confusing. You might say, well, wait a minute. Does that mean I earn God's love once I start loving Jesus? What did Jesus say in the rest of this gospel? It's not that you chose me, but I chose you. So clearly, Jesus is the one who's starting this, this relationship. Ultimately, it's God's plan, the Father's plan, and Jesus enacted that love. So he loved us first. He goes on, verse 28. This is the most concise summary, I think, in the whole gospel of what Jesus did. So if you got a pen and you got your Bible, right, this is a good one to underline. Verse 28. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now... I am leaving the world and going to the Father, okay? That's very clear. Jesus gives his mission right there. Before he was born into the world, guess where he was? He was with the Father. Not like us. We, we were born and we weren't with God before. We started existing when we were conceived. Not Jesus. Jesus was with the Father before. He comes down and now he's going back to the Father. That's the mission of Jesus, right? In three parts. He's with the Father. He comes down to be with us. Then he goes back to the Father, okay? Now the disciples turn around, verse 29, check it out in your Bibles. The disciples said, ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. We like that. You're telling us you were from God, you're coming down and going back to God. Verse 30, now we know that you know all things and don't need and do not need anyone to question you. We're not going to question your authority here. This is why we believe that you came from God. So the disciples say, we believe you. We believe you're from God. This is awesome. Thank you for telling us because this is like whole new information to us. Now, it's a good statement of faith, but Jesus turns around to them and says, do you now believe? Are you, is it now that, that you finally believe in me? Right, and this is a little bit of sarcastic talk here. And I think Jesus is asking that question because he knows really where their hearts are at. He's saying, is it now that you, you believe in me? You didn't believe in me before? Okay, now you believe in me. Okay, how much do you really believe in me? I think that's kind of what Jesus is asking. Here's why. Verse 32. Behold, the hour is coming, and indeed it has now come, when you will be scattered, each one of you to his own home, and you will leave me alone. What is Jesus promising right there? He's already promised it before, that the disciples, when Jesus is betrayed, are the disciples going to stick around and say, we're going to fight for Jesus, we're going to be with Jesus, we'll die with Jesus tonight. That's not what happens. They all run away. They all go to their own homes. They all basically wimp out and they don't die with Jesus that night. He says, you're all going to be scattered. So thanks for saying you believe in me, but you don't really believe in me the way you should because you all are going to abandon me. Yet, I'm not alone for the father is with me. Even when I'm being tortured and crucified, God is still with me. Even if it's in a judgment sense where he's being judged for our sin. Now, I don't know how you'd feel after all that, but this next verse, Jesus concludes everything he said at the dinner table. Okay. This is the last thing that he tells them. The next two sermons, we're going to look at a prayer that Jesus prays at the table. But this is the last thing he says. This is how he sums up everything. Verse 33. I've said these things to you, that in me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. Tribulation means hardships. Things will go wrong. They'll be terrible for you in some senses. But... Take heart, be strong, be courageous. Trust me, that's what he's saying there. Take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, if, if you're standing there, 
are sitting there at the table, and Jesus says he's overcome the world. Think about that. He's about to die. How has he overcome the world? That doesn't make any sense. It feels like he's losing here, and it feels like he's promising all you disciples, yeah, you're going to be a loser too. But you know what? In the end, I'm going to win. And ultimately, in the end, these disciples are going to be winners too. Even when it feels like Jesus is against all odds, he says right here, I have overcome the world and I'm going to win. When it looks like I'm the loser, when it looks like I'm crucified and I'm completely out of God's plan, he says, no, 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 this is exactly God's plan. When things get crazy and they get tough and you have so much sorrow because I died, it's not over. I'm going to win. Now you might say, well, wait a minute. Okay. That might be great for the disciples, but now I stand 2,000 years later looking back at this. Okay, what do I learn from this? Because I'm not like surprised that Jesus died. I've known that ever since I went to church. I know Jesus died. That doesn't surprise me. That doesn't shock me like it shocked the disciples. The resurrection, that's, for some of you, that's just a historical fact that you know happened, but there's no impact on your life like it was for the disciples because it impacted their whole life. It changed them. It says they got joy that nobody could take from them because Jesus rose again. You might be wondering what connection this has to you. And the big connection is, first of all, Jesus is the winner and everyone who trusts in him will be a winner. That's, that's the big thing from this passage. That's what Jesus is saying about himself. That's what he's promising his, to his disciples. And that's ultimately what every disciple of Jesus can take away from this passage. But I want to work through it again. I want you to write this down for point number one because these first few sections of verses, we talked about the sorrow and the joy of Jesus dying. And I want you to feel that. Because for the disciples, they felt it because they lived it. But I want you, point number one, to feel the sorrow and the joy of the cross. I want you to feel that. The sorrow and the joy of the cross. Because if I asked you, hey, did Jesus die for, for us? You'd say, yes. Did Jesus rise for us? You'd say, yes. Okay. But I want you to know, and I want you to think through, have I really thought about that? Has, have I let that really hit my heart? Not just my head, not just a, a fact that I know, not just a historical thing that happened. Because like this right here was obvious for the disciples. Jesus didn't have to tell them, hey, you need to feel sad, right? They just felt sad. But he did have to promise them, you're gonna feel joy. It's obvious for the disciples. It's maybe not that obvious for us. But it would be if we looked at the death of Jesus from a little bit of a different perspective. We oftentimes look at the death of Jesus as a historical thing that happened a long time ago. They viewed it as something that affected and changed their entire life. I want you to think, have I thought of the death and resurrection of Jesus as something that has affected my entire life? Does it really make a difference for me? The Bible says that if you believe in Jesus, it makes all the difference for you. But if you don't get that and you're wondering, ah, I guess I really haven't thought about that for, for me. I've thought about it in general, but I haven't thought about what impact that has on me. Then that's something we need to discuss. That's something we really have to get into. Because there was sorrow. Jesus was rejected and mistreated. But there's going to be joy when he rose again. I think that illustration that Jesus gives about the baby is really helpful. Because here, here's basically what he's saying. Okay, Why? It's <laughs> a weird question. But why would a mom be scared to have a baby? What's going to cause the pain for that mom? The baby. Okay. It's just how it is, right? Why is she excited to have the baby? 
Well, the baby, same thing. The same thing that causes the pain is the thing that will bring the joy. It's the same thing. But just you got to go through the the pain to, to get the joy later on. That's what Jesus is getting at, okay? When you think of the cross of Jesus, you think of pain or do you think of joy? I hope you think of both. I hope that if, if you're a real Christian tonight, you think of the pain because you know that you're the one who put him there. And you know that your sins are the, are the thing that he paid for. That should bring you pain. But then once you, once you realize, wait, he went through that for me. He paid for my sins. And if, if you really trust in him, then when you think of the cross, do you think of bad things or good things? Well, you think of good things because Jesus died for me, right? Yeah, that brought me a lot of pain that Jesus had to die for me. But you know what? Now, when I look at the cross, it's joy because Jesus died for me. It's the same thing that brought the pain is the thing that brought the joy from two different perspectives, okay? If you think about how the disciples would later on talk about the cross, how would they talk about the cross? When Peter would talk about the cross or even Paul, when he talked about the cross, Galatians chapter 6, verse 14 says, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, I am proud of the cross. I, I tell everybody about the cross. It's joy to me. Why? By which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Like, what are you talking? Why are you excited that you died to the world? Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, the word of the cross is folly. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. Right? You tell the world that Jesus died for them. They're like, yeah, that's a great fairy tale. Thanks for telling me that. It's not true. There's no way that impacts me. Paul says it's folly. It's foolishness to those who are perishing, to those who are headed to destruction. But to us who are saved, it is the power of God. The same thing that brought them sorrow is the thing that brought them joy. Okay. Now, I want you to say, then I want you to ask the question, have I sorrowed or felt the sorrow of the cross? Have I really reckoned with that? And do I now rejoice? Do I feel the joy of the cross too? I want you to turn to a passage when everybody turn your Bibles to the right, to Romans chapter five. Romans chapter five, verse six. We'll look at a few verses here. Actually, kind of a big section here. So I want you all to turn there. Romans five, verse six. You've probably memorized one of these verses right here, verse 8 in the middle. You probably know once we get to it. But I want you to look at what happens before and after. And I want you to look for two things. I want you to look for the sorrow of the cross. And I also want you to look for the joy of the cross. The joy of that, really the resurrection. Romans 5, verse 6, it says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Who's the ungodly? Does that include you? It should. Verse 7. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person. It's hard to say, oh, I want you to die for somebody. But well, maybe, maybe I would die for my best friend. Maybe I would die for a sibling. Probably not. Maybe I would die for, for my mom or my dad. Maybe I would lay my life out on the line for them. One would scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. Maybe you'd die for a really, really, really good person. But God shows his love for us in this. This is what God's love is, really in a nutshell. This is how God showed his love for us. That while we were still sinners, that word is a big word in the Bible, sinners. 
lawbreakers, not living up to God's standard, breaking God's rules, doing the things that God hates, using God's name in vain, lying at school, laughing at bad jokes, disrespecting your parents, fighting with your siblings. Sinner. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how he showed his love. That when you were the enemy, he died for you. Verse 9, since therefore, we've now been justified by his blood. Okay, What does it mean to be justified? That means for God to look at you, one of those sinners, and say, now you're righteous. Now you're, you're, you're perfect in my sight. Now, what does that mean? That when you die, that when God looks at you, he'll see all the good things that Jesus ever did. That Jesus takes away your sin and puts on you all the good things he ever did. And God sees you as righteous, perfect. Okay? Doesn't mean that you're a perfect person here. It just means that God will view you as a perfect person when you stand before him, justified. How are we justified? By his blood. That's called the cross. When Jesus died. It says, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. You see the cross right there? We were reconciled by the cross. Much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Resurrection. See that? See the cross, the sorrow, and the joy here. More than that, we also rejoice. That's the word joy. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation, friendship with God that we didn't deserve. Okay? So when we look at that and say, okay, we see the cross. Well, Jesus died for me. That's, that's really bad. It's really bad that I, I had to be responsible for his death. But really good because I know if he died for me, that means I'm, I can be forgiven. That means I can be saved of all my sin. Have you really reckoned with the sorrow of the cross? And have you trusted in Jesus? And now you can look at the cross and say, I rejoice because that's, that's where Jesus paid for my sin. That's the only reason I can be saved. Jesus says, okay, you disciples, you're going to feel that. We have to get ourselves in that mindset to feel that because we don't experience it in a linear timeline like they did. We look back. And Jesus says, you know, after I'm resurrected and after you see my resurrection, our relationship's going to change a little bit in the sense that now you're not just going to come to me physically and ask me a bunch of questions. You're going to go straight to God. Look what it says back in our passage, John chapter 16. Back in the passage, John 16, starting in verse 23. Jesus says, in that day, you'll ask nothing of me. You'll, you'll understand the salvation plan. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name. So now you're going to God directly. He will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. You haven't gone to God through me yet. He's talking to these disciples at this time. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Okay. Jesus is saying, what's even the purpose of your prayer? Why, why is God giving you this gift of prayer? One word, joy. That your joy may be full. That's what he's talking about. That might be surprising to some of you. That's why God gave you prayer? That's why, God, that's why Jesus made a way for you to pray? So that you could have joy? That, that's it? Well, that's what Jesus says here. That you will have joy. Your joy may be full. 
he goes on, he talks about prayer again in verse 26. He says, in that day, you'll ask in my name. And it's not that I'm just asking God on your behalf. You're going straight to God. And how can you go straight to God? Well, because God opens that way because the father himself loves you. Okay, now once you think I can go pray because God loves me, because it just said I was his enemy here. How can God love me if I'm his enemy? Well, because Jesus died for you. And Jesus died so that he could bring you into that relationship, that word reconciliation from Romans 5. This whole section here is really calling you and me, if we're Christians, to pray. And not just to pray in a mindless way, but to go to God and to get joy from God through prayer. That's point number two. Renew your joy through prayer. Right? For Christians, you got to renew your joy through prayer. That's how he says you do it. He just said the sorrow will turn into joy. Okay? The joy in that context was the excitement that the disciples would have when they see the resurrected Jesus. You know, obviously John writes this down. In John chapter 20, verse 20 it says that when the disciples saw Jesus, they were exceedingly glad or they rejoiced. Okay, so I think John is making that reference. Hey, remember how Jesus promised you'd rejoice when you see him again? What happens when the disciples see him? John adds the point, they rejoiced. Promise fulfillment right there in John 16 and John 20. Now, moving forward though, it's like you might say, whoa, whoa, whoa time out though. I don't see the resurrected Jesus. Where's my joy? When he says, in that day, you'll ask the father. You're going to connect through prayer. That's how these disciples, after Jesus died, rose again, and then ascended, went back to God, went back to the father. After that happened, how are the disciples going to be joyful, huh? Because they don't see Jesus anymore. Well, Jesus says, you're going to get joy. You're going to sustain your joy through talking to the father, through prayer. Problem is so many Christians get bogged down with sorrow and sadness that is, for some people, 100% just related to this life. And for most of us, just what's happening this year. Stuff that's going to be over and done with. And you're not even going to worry about. For some of us, next week, we're not even going to worry about that thing. But we get bogged down with sorrow. Or that other word, anxiety. Or depression. Or whatever word you want to use for sorrow. Many of us get bogged down with those things that won't even matter in a little bit. Jesus says, you know how if you're a Christian, you can renew your joy. It's through talking to God. That's, that's the answer. Right? Everybody wants to know, how, how can I stop being anxious? Right? Jesus gives the answer right here. Talk to God. Right? Paul said the same thing in Philippians 4. Right? If you've got anxiety, if you're scared about things, you know what you should do? You should take those anxieties to God. Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, which means requests or asking God, Make your request known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard, will be like a, like a fortress around your heart. Guard your heart and your mind. Not just your heart. Not just your, your thinking process, but even the mental process. Prayer. I think the problem for a lot of us is Jesus offers us joy, but we don't even realize what he's offering us. It's like we have something, but we don't even know what it is. We don't see the value of it, so we, we don't think much of it, okay? 
It's a lot like the story I read about these two guys. There were these two brothers that were living in a cave. <laughs> this is not a fake story. This is a real story. In 2009, there were these two brothers that were living in a cave. They were homeless. They were living in a cave in Hungary, okay? They were hungry and hungry. Uh, outside the city of Budapest, Hungary. This sounds like a fairy tale. It's not a fairy tale. It's in the newspapers. Um, I looked it up online today. In 2009, two brothers were living in a cave, homeless, outside of the city of Budapest, Hungary. Okay? They got in contact with these attorneys, these, these lawyers, through a social agency that they were getting free food from that said, I, I don't know, you guys probably don't know this, but, uh, but you have a grandma. Both of you. You have a grandma. She lived in Germany. She made her money primarily in the European Union, and she left an inheritance behind. Do you want to collect it? Homeless guys, two homeless guys living in a cave in Budapest, like, sure. How much is it worth? Four billion pounds, which is about five billion dollars. Just these two dudes. Homeless guys in Hungary. I mean, it's ironic. They're hungry and hungry. They go to the social service agency or whatever they have there. Or they get in contact with some lawyer that was just trying to search in the world to find these two guys. Yeah, yeah, we got to give it to you because we got to trust. It's got five billion with a B, billion dollars for you. You want it? And then they're like, yeah, we want it. Yeah, sure. And they get it. <laughs> And they're probably, you know, living somewhere crazy right now. I don't know, with five billion, I don't even know what, you can't even comprehend that, right? I want cool stuff and it's like, it's like a couple hundred bucks. I'm like, that'd be awesome if I got that. Um, billion dollars, like what do you do with that, okay? They were like sitting on all this inheritance. They didn't even know they had it. Jesus here promises joy that is so much better and greater than you could even think of. And it's right there. And he says, oh, you just got to ask. Just ask God. It's there. I provided it for you. I want you to turn to another passage, Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 starts to talk about the spiritual blessings, which means the gifts, the inheritance that God has for you, that you have access to right now, that some of you might not even think much of. Ephesians chapter 1. If you turn to Romans, it's just a couple of books over to the right from the book of Romans. I want everybody to turn there. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1. Look at verse 3. Ephesians 1, 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. That means he's gift, gifted us. In Christ, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That sounds like spiritual language. But what it's talking about is, God has given Christians, everyone who's a Christian, he's given you a gift. Not just one. So many gifts. Spiritual gifts. That if only we'd recognize the true value of it, it would change our entire lives. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That's a great gift right there, that God chose you. I mean, think about that. If you're a Christian, God chose you. He chose you. Do you know what it's like to be chosen? Sometimes you know what it's like not to be chosen, right? We're in the line playing kickball. And you're not chosen. It's like, oh, it feels terrible not to be chosen. And for something a lot more important, guess what? God chose his people. He chose you. Next verse. In love. 
He predestined us. He chose his people. He chose you for adoption, okay? He chose you for adoption. Now, it's one thing to be chosen from a line of people to play kickball, okay? It's another thing to be an orphan with no parents and to be chosen to join this new family. I mean, that's a whole different choosing because that's worth a lot more to be joining a family and playing a kickball team. Uh, I guess the family is a little bit more important, right? Now, what kind of family are we chosen into? Adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. That right there is a sentence that would make the people in the Old Testament, that would make their heads spin. Are you saying that we're like adopted into like God's family, like as his sons, like legitimate heirs in his family? How is that possible? Right? I thought Israel was the son. No, no, no. Jesus, the son, the firstborn, the leader of the sons, gives us access according to the purpose of his will. This is all God's choosing. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he's blessed us in the beloved. Now, that just goes to verse six. That's a lot of blessing that God chose you. Like now think, when you're thinking, oh, I don't have joy, I'm anxious about something. Then you stop and think and you pray and you realize, wait, God chose me to be his son, his daughter, and his family kept secure by God forever? Wow. Wow. Yeah, that is some joy. That, that's, that's some deep, long-lasting joy. That, that, that joy can't be taken away from me. Verse 7. In him, talking about these spiritual blessings, we have redemption through his blood. Whose blood are we talking about now? Talking about Jesus' blood. Right? All that stuff from verses 3 to 6 was really all talking about God the Father and all the good stuff he's given us. Now we're moving into, well, what did Jesus do for us? In him we have redemption through his blood. Right? Blood is gross. I got blood taken for the first time like two weeks ago. I don't even know what my blood type is. Everybody keeps asking me because I didn't get COVID. It's like, well, what blood type are you? It's like, I don't know what blood type. I don't even know if that makes a difference, right? I got blood. It was gross. I didn't even look. Like I was, I was they came to my house, which is weird. Anyway, weird story. Um, I'm fine. I'm not like, I'm not dying. Not that I know of. So I should be okay. But um they got blood, and this is gross. Could you imagine giving your blood, right? And that wasn't even that gross. If you had a little needle, and it, it always went out nicely. I always imagine, well, what if he took it out, and he's just the blood starts just squirting. But that starts start to freak out a little bit, right? I'm like, is that supposed to happen? Right? I've never had blood taken, right? And then it's like, could you imagine, instead of just giving a little bit of blood, or having it freak out, instead, it's like, no, someone's coming to hurt you. To shed your blood. That's a whole different freak out moment. It's like, I'm running out of town. Someone's coming to shed my blood like that. Right? It's like, no, no, no. Jesus, when he shed his blood for us, he didn't just give a little bit. He didn't just give his arm to get a shot. No, no. He gave his whole self to be crucified, spit on, beat, punished by God. So that we could have, the next word, forgiveness of our trespasses. According to the riches of his grace with which he has lavished upon us, okay? That word lavish does not mean like he gave us a little bit of drop. Lavish is what happens when you are at 7-Eleven and you turn the icy machine all the way to the one end and it just starts spitting out at like a gallon a second, right? You know what I'm talking about? That, that's what I think of when I think of the word lavish. It's just like a dumping. It's like uh, you got those big buckets from Home Depot full of water and I remember the ice bucket challenge when you were like three years old, right? Um, <laughs> sorry, uh, Dumping, right? The idea is 
God lavishes his grace. Ultimately, this is Jesus' work here is the focus. He lavished his grace upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mysteries of his will. Now, here's what he says right here. Now, not only do you have joy from God, God lets you in on a secret that he didn't tell anybody before this, that now you get to know his whole salvation plan, that not only are you just knowledgeable about it, that he basically shared a secret with you, but you're also a part of it. Now, think of that anxiety, think of the sorrow. It's like, okay, well, that's, we can put that away because this joy is better than that, according to his purpose, with which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to him, things in heaven and things on earth. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, okay? More than $5 billion, an inheritance. The kingdom of God is gonna be given to you. So next time things are are taken away from you and you have the sorrow of that or whatever the sorrow is and say, okay, well, I need to renew my joy through prayer. What's something you should think of? You, if you're a Christian, you're an heir. You have an inheritance that's not just money. It's not that stuff. It's a kingdom. It's a relationship with God. Having been predestined, we've mentioned that before, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. He's working all this out. So God's in complete control of all this. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth. Now, think, okay, when did I hear the word of truth? When did I hear the gospel? The gospel of your salvation and believe. So it's not just when you heard the gospel, it's when you believed in the gospel. And for some of you, you're looking back on that. But for others of you, that's not even true right now. You don't believe in him, for some of you. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That's what we talked about last week. That Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit. We're sealed. What does that mean to be sealed? It's like one of those wax seals, if you know what those are. Right? They, if you've seen those little like crayon looking things, they burn it with a little over a candle or something. They get it all hot. They put the little brass you know, ring thing in it, if you know what I'm talking about. And they stamp it on in the wax and then that's a seal. What's a seal? Right? It shows whose it is. Right? What this says is the Holy Spirit goes in you. Guess what that shows? You're God's. You belong to him. We talked about being chosen. You know what it feels like to belong to somebody? That feels really good. I belong to them. God says here, Christians, you, you belong to me. And the Holy Spirit is what proves that. It says the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. It's the down payment. It's the thing that God gives now to prove that one day without a shadow of a doubt, you will have that inheritance. You will have that kingdom to the praise of his glory. Okay. That's a big, long list. And by the way, in the original language, that's one sentence. From verse 3 to verse 14. That's all one big sentence in the original language. All I wanted you to do for a second there, and it feels like we just went into a different world talking about that. That might be what it feels like to you. How do you renew your joy? Well, it's talking to God about that kind of stuff. You see all that? That's what God's promised you. He's got so much joy for you, but the problem is so many of us don't even pray. We don't even talk to God, right? And if you're wondering why you don't have the joy of the Lord, and if you're wondering why I don't have this peace that the Bible talks about, this joy, right? We gotta pray. You've got to pray. I know for some of you, that's gotta be a big thing. Anxiety is probably the biggest sin for a lot of you sitting in here tonight. It might be the biggest sin for you. 
One word. Pray. That's what Jesus says. What kind of joy are you missing out on? Because you don't pray. Jesus transitions back in our passage. He, he moves on. He says, okay, after this prayer talk, he says the disciples, they start to say, oh, I get it. I get it now. And Jesus says, you, don't even, you get it a little bit, but you don't really get it. Do you really believe? Do you now believe? You're all going to be scattered. You're going to leave me alone. You're going to abandon me. But, verse 33, I said all this to you that you may have peace. Even in this world, you'll have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. The disciples believe Jesus a little bit. But when their faith was tested, what happened? It failed, didn't it? They ran away. They had a little bit of faith. They didn't have a lot of faith. They had a shallow faith. They didn't have a deep faith. What happens when the disciples see Jesus risen again? What happens the next time after this, they're tested and they stand before the governors and the council and the Sanhedrin? Do they back down and say, oh, please don't hurt me? That's not what they do. Because they saw the resurrected Jesus. They know with confidence, I'm not backing down anymore. They're given that joy and they're also given the peace and the power to stand up for Jesus. That all came when they trusted him deeply. They had a little trust, they needed to trust him deeply. That's what we need to do. Point number three, deepen your trust in Jesus and have peace. Deepen your trust in Jesus and have peace. I want you to write down this passage, 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 talks about how, back in our passage, chapter 16, verse 33 says, Jesus said, I overcame the world. It doesn't even say that I overcame it. I have overcome. It's a special tense in the language. It's the tense that says there was continual action with effects now. He overcame the world and he has overcome the world, which has an effect right now. First John 5, that passage I told you to write down, it says this, for everyone who has been born of God, overcomes the world. So Jesus is the winner. He's the overcomer, the victor over the world. Now, John says in his epistle, everyone who believes in Jesus and has been born of God, they overcome the world too. What does that look like? And this is the victory that has overcome the world. What's the victory? What's the secret sauce? What makes that all happen? What is it? Our faith. Trust in Jesus. That's the thing that, that gives us the victory over the world, our trust in Jesus. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes in Jesus, the one that believes that he is the son of God? I want you to ask the question of yourself tonight, okay, how deep is my trust in Jesus? How deep is it really? Because the disciples, when they were tested, their faith proved to be shallow. And what was their testing? And their testing was they were tempted to run away. They did. When you're tempted to do things that are wrong and sin, how strong is your faith in Christ? How strong is it? Because if it's really strong, you're going to reject that temptation and say, I'm not going to be a part of that. I'm not going to join in on those jokes. I'm not going to laugh at that kind of stuff. I'm not going to dress like them. I'm not going to go to those places. I'm not going to say those words. If your trust in Jesus is solid, it's like, look, he overcame the world. I don't need to be a part of all this. Sometimes your, your faith is tested in hard times just like with these disciples. When you trust Jesus, basically, you get the power to live righteously because you think, I, Jesus died and rose again. And he says he's going to send his spirit to help me. I don't have to say yes to sin. You have supernatural power to say no to sin. When you trust in Jesus, you're not 
having to be anxious anymore because you recognize all those things, especially from Ephesians 1, all those spiritual blessings he's given you. You don't have to be anxious because you know well, Jesus cares for me. Back in that passage, it says that the Father loves me. When you trust in Jesus, you're bold enough to share the truth about Jesus with people even when they don't like it, just like the disciples were. Another passage that says Jesus gives us the victory over the world is Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, 37. It says, in all these things, all the tribulations we face in the world, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. When you're excluded, when it's hard to say no to sin, and you trust in Jesus, you win. You win when you trust in Jesus. Because the interesting thing about all this winning and overcoming that Jesus mentions, when we think about sports, or we think about Tom Brady being a winner or whatever, we think, well, he's a winner, but he's like not in control of the game because he loses sometimes. The thing about Jesus is Jesus is not only a winner, he is in control of the game. And here's what he invites you to be, a part of his team. He invites you to be a part of his team and he's the winner. And if you know and you trust, well, he's the winner. So if I just get aligned with him, I'm going to be the winner. It's exactly 1 John 5, 4 and 5's point. You trust in Jesus. He's the overcomer of the world. You now can overcome the world. You can overcome the sin. You can overcome that anxiety. You can overcome all that stuff because that, that's, that's worldly stuff because you trust in Jesus. All that suffering of Jesus was a part of the plan. And he won. And he's going to win. And even now in our world, when it seems like, oh, I don't know if Jesus is winning, Jesus promises, no, 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 I have overcome the world. That means I'm going to finish it one day. But what we need to do now is trust. Trust in him. Let's pray.